被害者は売春婦ですいつかこういう目に遭うんだよな最近も認めてるしやったことはどれも肩触りちょいと任せして刃物振り下ろした俺の娘だここで殺された俺の娘だここで殺された安川さんはこういつぐちそんなことにご覧になったことある Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. And at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon, you better do it. We decide, we're very aggressive, we decide <laughs> on all the uh, official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover patreon subscribers also get an on-air shout out and two bonus episodes every single month which we have been doing for over a year and i yes. think a half at this point so if you haven't made the jump yet there are uh, lots of bonus episodes waiting for you i think Tons. uh nearly 40 or maybe even more than 40 at this point so if you haven't considered that uh give it a look um what's the other plug oh uh, actually speaking of which by the way we do have two more new patrons this week oh, that nice. i forgot to mention yeah, uh nice. so we want to thank tom halliday and duncan mcgregor who thank both signed up this week Appreciate and are getting it. all those bonus episodes so thanks uh for joining us uh the other plug itunes if you guys are listening on itunes yes please and you've been digging the show make sure to give us a good old rating and review over there uh it helps us find new listeners and we appreciate that as well But those are your plugs for the week. I'm your host, as always, Josh Lewis, and joining me also, as always, Jamie Miller. Welcome back. We are back. We are talking sleazy movies. I think two weeks ago would have been the last time you guys, free listeners, would have heard from us, and we would have been talking with Eric Siska of We the We Hate Movies podcast. Yeah. And we were talking 80s children fantasy trash. We did、uh, Beastmaster, lots of fun, 1982, as well as Crawl, 1983, both. Uh, uh, vaguely,、uh, one sort of a Conan ripoff, the other one yeah, a direct Star、yeah. Wars slash Lord of the Rings ripoff. <laughs>、yeah. um, but it was both, fun to see all those references throughout. You know, like but, the double, the double <laughs> sun, the spider lair. But was, both very fun、uh, movies to talk about, especially with Eric, who was the kind of guy who devoured those、uh, on TV and on VHS like a maniac. Yeah, it was interesting. I, I'm sure to hear our takes of.、Uh, To adults that have never seen them in our lives, no <laughs> nostalgia, no nostalgia at all. <laughs>、um, but last week would have been the last time you、uh, bonus listeners, you guys, Patreon listeners, would have heard from us, and we would have been talking Rooker Hauer.、Uh, yeah. uh, recently passed away, and we realized that we had not seen or at least talked about any of his、uh, movies on this I, show I yet. I personally hadn't seen any. The only one I saw was、uh, Blade Runner. Yeah,、so. which we still haven't done on this show. Yeah, and we still haven't. So it'll, it'll don't get、down. excited. Yeah, it'll、uh, go.、Down. Last week we talked about、uh, Soldier of Orange,、uh, 1977. Paul Verhoeven, his sort of like personal World War II.、Uh, I, I guess sort of an epic. I mean, it's two two hours and like forty minutes or whatever. Yeah, it、uh, was interesting to see Verhoeven do that,、uh, especially just for me because I'm used to his like kind of. Slimy, sex-filled <laughs> kind of stuff, which we get more with uh, uh, flesh and blood. No, yeah, Soldier of Orange, more based on his、um, personal experience growing up 
in uh, the Netherlands mm-hmm. um, in World War II where he said that bombs were going off and uh, bodies were flying in uh, at, outside the front of his house, basically. So yeah. that's that Quite movie. A time. Very fun, obviously, uh, <laughs> yeah. watching a group of friends get torn apart by <laughs> World War II. Uh, and then even more fun, Flesh and Blood, 1985. Yeah, this is fun uh, for the whole family. His first English language film, which is sort of like your proto um, violent medieval vaguely Game of Thrones type deal. But this one has no discernible hero at all. <laughs> no, it's just completely disgusting. It's where the uh, the kind of movie where the prince and princess make, uh, make out in front of a rotting corpse hanging from a tree that is said to have just ejaculated because of death. And then yep. that uh, sperm went down and <laughs> formed some sort of root that yep. they then eat. Verhoeven, baby. So that's Verhoeven <laughs> for you. Um, lots of lots of guts and people being stabbed to death. So if that's your kind of thing, we did a double feature of Old School Paul Verhoeven, both films, uh, giving Rutger Hauer uh, R.I.P. And he's the, incredible. Uh, like, the leading man role, God. and he is spectacular in both yeah. films, that's for sure. It's, it's easy to see how he became an international star. Absolutely. But this week, moving on, we have a uh, special guest with us here. One of my personal favorite and longtime mutual Twitter followers, a godly uh, shit poster, sometimes <laughs> thinker, uh, depending on what mood he's in. <laughs> and that is Sean R. Moorhead. Sean, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Welcome. Uh, as the way that this show, this show goes, Sean, uh, we have the guest on these episodes bring the double feature with them. So what two films have you brought with you today and why do they pair together? Um, I chose Kiyoshi Kurosawa's films uh, Cure and Serpent's Path. I think that maybe the more intuitive double feature would have been um, Serpent's Path and Eyes of the Spider because those were two films made the same year, same crew, um, back-to-back, roughly the same premise, although Eyes of the Spider dispenses with the, the... child murder thing pretty quickly (laughs) and moves into much stranger territory but i don't have as much to say about that one as i do about cure and uh, just just watching them this morning it was like oh well okay there actually are similarities we could get into yeah oh no absolutely because yeah the uh the serpent's path and eyes of the spider uh double feature that he released in 98 was the direct follow-up to cure it was the next production that he did work on and it was funny it's glad that you brought that up at the start i was going to tell jamie about that that serpent's path was made on what amounts to like a cinematic dare where someone was like i'll give you a little bit of money but you got to film two movies in one month using the same crew in the same locations and (laughs) using the same premise basically and he had two writers so kiyoshi did the screenplay for Eyes of the Spider, and then the uh, Ringu uh, guy, I forget his name, he wrote the screenplay for Serpent's Path. Oh, wow. And they made them basically back-to-back. They had two weeks to shoot both films. So imagine, again, before we even get into it... That's crazy. ...that you're such a good filmmaker that you're told two weeks using a limited crew and, like, no money and a screenplay that you wrote, like, a week ago make something like Serpent's Path, which is, like, unrecognizably, like, you would not know that that was the conditions it was made under. No, it's a I very thought that that was film. very, de- you know, detailed in its crafting, <laughs> you know? Like, wow, that's that's incredible. And Eyes of the Spider is is also, I enjoyed it quite a bit, but it's the the thing that makes it so funny, it's, it's sheer wooliness is also what makes it sort of 
undiscussable in a format like this. Yeah, so they would have made a made a, a double feature even if just on a production level since they were made using the exact same crews like two weeks later, which is wow. pretty funny. Uh, but I'm also very glad that you brought Cure because, uh, spoilers I guess, uh, Cure is like one of my all-time favorite uh, horror movies just in general and Kurosawa is That's one of incredible. my favorite modern Japanese filmmakers. So very glad to finally get the chance to talk about Cure. It's probably like my third or fourth time watching it, and I watched nice. it for the first time like this was my maybe second. three years ago. So yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure I remember recommending it to That's you, why, and then yeah. you went and watched otherwise, it. Yeah, this probably would have been another blind spot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sure, off it's... off podcast recommendation, I was like, Jamie, you have to watch Cure. So very glad that Sean could bring it on. Yeah, um, and I realize that's probably the most basic um, Kurosawa choice I could have made, but there's there's one particular aspect of it that. I don't feel like I've seen discussed. I could be wrong, but sure, well, um, we'll definitely get into it as we're as we're jumping into it. Because um, yeah, I think the only film maybe more popular might have might be Pulse, I guess, because that actually yeah, I think got, that was a, got a full English film, language remake at least and everything. On Letterboxd. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think Pulse is his his most genuinely scary film. Do you know what? Oh, no. I still haven't seen Pulse. Me That's like my one major blind spot uh, with him. Because I'll I've definitely seen, like, be diving into it after. I've these seen some of his dramas also, more. This is going to sound like a joke, but it ends with a wacky freeze frame and a pop song. Classic. That's awesome. Classic. Uh, Kiyoshi on that he front. I mean, I mean, Cure opens with one in its own way. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that being said, I think we're gonna jump right into it. We are going to talk. Right, we are talking Cure, the 1997 Japanese film written and directed by one Kiyoshi Kurosawa, um, starring, oh, Sean, you might need to help me here, um, <laughs> Koji Yakusho? Mm-hmm. Okay, and Masato Hagawara? Yeah, that's uh, that's adequate. Okay. <laughs> okay All we'll, right. Well, do you we'll know what? Because I've been I've been practicing on the Japanese names for a little while, so uh, <laughs> yeah. that that it still it still hurts sometimes, but <laughs> I'm I'm going for it. Um, this film largely uh, follows uh, Koji's character, who he plays a detective Takabi, um, who is uh, investigating sort of like a a series of gruesome murders that are sweeping. Uh, the Tokyo area. The only connection, I guess, between them all is this this bloody X that is carved into the neck of of, of each victim. Um, but he is perplexed um, by this serial murderer because, um, in each case, the murderer is completely different. Um, typically found with no history of violence or, or, or of crime, and most of the victims seem in some sort of bizarre haze of regret where they don't seem to very remember the crime. They remember the literal action of the crime, yeah. but they can't seem to remember 
really the, the why of it. So one of the creepiest parts is kind of them, they, they tell you that they it felt natural to kill. Yeah, that's, but yet that's they, a, at the same the time inside, they know it's completely it. wrong. And it's just like that. Yeah, they were like, battle. there's no reason to it. I'm yeah. disgusted by it. It just, it seemed like the right thing, thing to, to do. do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just <laughs> downright frightening. Yes. And, and as the film kind of unfolds, we get a bit of a cat and mouse between the detective and uh, what is revealed to be sort of a, a, a young drifter slash hypnotist um, who is um, putting each of these people into their own trance and kind of activating their more primal urges and anxieties and and weaponizing them to commit murder um and i then, love his introduction just like just man on a beach just as if he's like just kind of appears mm. and then uh just just the way that they uh that they pace him as he gets creepier and creepier is amazing just even talking again on that beach scene just the the seeing him go up to somebody have that conversation and then all in one frame uh, have the guy come back and ask him the same questions. And you're just kind of, it gives you that uneasy feeling and it's a perfect introduction to what's to come. And I think this film is really a clinic in stringing people along with a mystery that somewhat defies description in that, mm. um, you know, although what exactly is happening is unclear, um, he gives you these very specific material details like the um, the dripping water and the, the cigarette lighter and what's amusing to me is that this is something that is the all, the dripping water and all of that. That's something you see throughout his films, and um, you know, have, having used that sort of as as a backdrop or to create this atmosphere of decay, he uh, he he made a film in which it's actually the mechanism for murder. Yeah, 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 and it's. It, I find this particularly interesting because I think Kurosawa deploys a sort of form that I don't think a lot of people deploy in the same way that he does here, where he has kind of like this elliptical, kind of sort of like detached, almost like I would I would call it maybe maybe not dispassionate, but like passive. Sure. Um kind of filmmaking style where he he operates mostly in like these very wide frames and unlike a lot of horror a lot of time you will find where they will accentuate accentuate you know like a gruesome detail or they will punch into a scene to be like this is fucking scary yeah he seems to withhold that throughout this entire film which to me is actually creepier yeah, it adds it adds kind of this layer of just an, an unnatural human action, like w the the scene in which like the uh, the policeman shoots his other uh, police. That's exactly partner. the scene I was thinking and of he too. Just, when I'm talking you know, because the way that the actor goes, he just kind of nonchalant. Mm -hmm. It's like emotionless, right? He just shoots him in the head, and then calmly, as if he's not reacting or or emoting at all just grabs the body and starts dragging it uh, so that he can do the stabbing motion. Exactly. Just like nothing about the way that that scene is filmed suggests horror. Right. But it is because right. the the content is is horrifying and the way yeah. that he's kind of set you up. It's Again, it's just, it's a very calm, very still filmmaking style, which Sean, you know, already kind of mentioned at the top of the show, which does kind of reflect the kind of the weird sort of trance-like vibe that he is putting into um, you know, sort of like these the, these lonely, isolated people yeah. that he is, you know, uh, well, actually hypnotizing. So you, it feels like you yourself are glued as well because he's giving you all of this space to look around in. 
He's like, look at all of these empty spaces. He's like, look at how still this is. And you're waiting for horrifying things to happen in them, mm-hmm. um, yeah. which is just a very engaging way to film something like this. And also it's, you know, again, it's not, it, it's not explicit in a way where it's telling you this. It's just like, this is the experience of watching this movie. Yeah. Yeah. There, the other uh, scene where it's kind of like showing a, a calmness and almost like this violence is, is occurring every day and this detective has to deal with things like this on a day-to-day basis. Not necessarily, of course, this particular case with this uh, hypnosis and all that, but that scene where it shows the first murder, which is just a man grabbing a pipe and hitting the woman over the head with it. Mm. And then it cuts to him in the car on the way to the scene and the music is just like (laughs) nonchalant, just real loungy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like just calm and and a a little bit happy. It's not not entirely upbeat, but it just seems like it's a theme song for something like, it's just your average day at work, you know, that kind of thing. And I thought that that was interesting. Yeah, even though he's already set up like his gruesome style that he's going to have. Exactly. And kind of like that supernatural feeling too, because we get that opening shot with the uh, the woman in the in the hospital, yeah, his and wife. I believe, I believe the, right, getting, right, uh, and I believe like the table shakes and stuff like oh, that. Yeah. So you start to get this right away. He establishes kind of a very supernatural uh, feeling for the film. And you mentioned the sort of the duration and the distance of the shots. And I would add uh, something I always thought was interesting was the way that he, um, you know, he reframes to follow people, but he doesn't necessarily. Um, you know, move around to get a better composition or anything like that. And so you have cases in which you'll be looking at uh, the back of someone's head or uh, someone will be blocked by, you know, a doorway or something like that. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't have any of the affectations that we, you would think of as documentarian, mm-hmm. like, um, you know, where, where they they pretend as though it's a, a camera person filming it in real time and uh, you have the, the shaky cam and, and sort of the camera located as though... Uh, someone's standing at the the only convenient place they could find. It's um, so it's like it's composed in the sense that y- you have all of these grid-like and layered compositions, but it's also um, yeah. What what you said, passive. That's good. It's sort of um, detached. I, I'm not sure what to say, but it's it's extremely eerie. Yeah. No. I yeah. I totally agree. And yeah, I I think there's kind of like this almost like alien, like mundane quality to it where you're watching something that seems like like it should be right but it's not quite like uh, like when they first go in and investigate the the um the the corpse of the prostitute who I think is killed in the the opening right. scene um and they they he begins by going into the bathroom and seeing where the killer took a shower and left his clothes there with his An wallet ID. in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They were just like, okay, so Not he... Not usually the move. They were like, so he just like rod it right out of here <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and left and all of his clothing and everything. This um, also leads to one of my, my favorite jokes in the film where, um, you know, the, the other policemen are asking him once what he wants to do next and he just, he opens the... Uh, the compartment where the naked man is hiding. Oh, right, right. <laughs> yeah. You know, there. <laughs> He's all like shaken in there. 
Yeah, well, and and when he's in the bathroom and he's looking at sort of like the blood on the, on the wall and stuff, and then he goes out to observe the corpse, the camera actually stays in the bathroom, which doesn't right. actually have a very good view of the room that they've just moved to. So you kind of get them framed within the frame in a way mm. that kind of closes them off and makes it hard to see things. And it's not until the smash cut of the actual corpse that it moves away from there, where it's like a close up of the giant X slit into her neck, yeah. um, where it's so sudden, where the the film seemed like it was very sort of like sympathetically not showing that to you up until the point where it's like here you go yeah, uh, and, and what he, I like what he does too is he, he usually just gives you a glimpse and then allows your brain to kind of put the pieces together like another one that's very oh God. gruesome are you going to talk but, about the face peel I was yeah, yes I, right. it just because it's like awful. Uh, just it, awful. and it's you know, <laughs> it awful yeah that'd be a perfect word for it uh, also to be that guy that just walks into the bathroom and sees that my god what a bad day but what he does he just does the peel for like one or two seconds he knows exactly what you're feeling and then he cuts away and just kind of makes you think about it but then leads you on to the next scene as well and it's just uh it's hard hitting for sure well yeah and, and it's obviously that kill is also as well by a hypnotized um surgeon so right. it's actually surgically done too right yeah so, it's so the just, peel is quite precise yeah <laughs> It, Has either of you ever seen his um, his films Barren Illusion and Bright Future? No, no, I haven't seen either of those ones. Um, Bright Future is probably my favorite after Cure, and um, uh, Barren Illusion is by a considerable margin my least favorite. It was written <laughs> by written entirely by his his class of film students, so wow. you can imagine how much fun that is. <laughs> um, well, but anyway, I bring both of them up because they they do the uh, within in Baron Illusion, you see uh, the characters periodically like fade in and out of reality, and um, almost as though like the the buildings and and everything around them are are more constant and and more solid than they are. Um, and and in uh, in Bright Future as well, you have these uh, without giving away too much these these glowing jellyfish that come and go through um, gaps in the floor. Mm. <laughs> that sounds interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it's that same sense of well, and and it as Josh was saying earlier, it's um the the camera doesn't it's not as though it's expressing anyone's perspective in particular. It doesn't um, push in on anyone's face when during a moment of particular intensity. It doesn't it doesn't feel really responsive to what people are doing apart from just following them somewhat. Yeah, and um. Yeah, and so I, I you, think that detail is actually super important, too, yeah. because, again, that's a huge part of what we were saying. We were talking about that death scene and, and things that you would see in, in horror. Not only does it not accentuate like moments of action that should be horrifying, where it, it's that it just keeps the wide shot as you watch it happen in an almost kind of like a fatalistic sense of like you're waiting for it to happen. Yeah. Um, and you don't even really have um, any sense of people's interiority. Exactly. It's almost in some ways, it's almost like a festival film, like something you would see from Ho Shaoshan or something like that, where um, you're, you're watching people with blank expressions on their faces doing things like um, drive or you know, like there are the people um, during the interrogation scenes just sitting in the background and watching. Yeah, no, for sure. There's 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 kind of like a surface element to what he's doing that's meant to kind of, I think, reflect a kind of like passive and polite 
society almost in his own way and but then filming all these atrocities happening but then it. also yeah just keeping in mind that i th- i think that he's trying to document kind of like a deep-seated almost like ancient desire yeah. to you know sort of like do harm that's lingering under the surface and that the, the hypnotism i think it's really mostly just suggested uh either way i think it's suggested by one of the characters the psychiatrist character that it cannot affect like a basic moral sense on someone but um, as we kind of see, the, the drifter kind of activates people's anxieties and pains and things that yeah. anger them and things, kind Who of just waiting really? to be activated. And all he does really is kind of strip them of that surface, like cultural norm, societal norm that right. would inhibit them from doing something right, like, like that. Right, like it's something simple like when he's, I think he's talking to one of the uh, like chief lieutenants of the, the police mm-hmm. and then he just, and, and the, the policeman, you know, answers and he's just like, I am... The, uh, yeah. the chief lieutenant of this, this, and this. He's like, no, who are you? Yeah, <laughs> like, just you know, pissing them break off. Break it down, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And significantly, this is, um, well, th- this is my fil- favorite film in the genre of, you know, detectives going mad because they have to get into the headspace of a, of a psychotic serial killer. It, what a great it's genre, f- though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's a great genre. My, my, it's th- my favorite because... And you guys, sorry, I know you're going to cut this out. Um, it's, nope. it's my favorite because the way that he wins is that he is a nobody. You know, he, whenever the guy asks him, who are you? He just answers a detective, a policeman. And, um, and, and later when he has the, the rant in front of the guy in his cell, he talks about, you know, he has no life. He keeps his professional and his personal life completely separate. Uh, his wife doesn't really understand what he does. Um, you, right. <laughs> well, because he, he, he ends up kind of in the middle and he says, so you are actually nobody because you're not your full self at work and you're not your yeah. full self at home. So you're you don't have a full self. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like the point that he makes to him, I think, when he says that. And as far as um, as far as these kind of ancient unexpressed anxieties, yeah, there's this um, irony where the the very quality that drives drives his resentment, which the hypnotist attempts to capitalize to capitalize upon is the um, the degree to which he's just repressing all of his feelings in his home and professional life. Um, but also, and the first time I watched the film, I wondered where they were going with this, and I wasn't sure whether I was sort of, you know, seeing a seeing a pattern where there wasn't one. But um, the mention of of Christianity in relation to hypnotism strikes me as significant because i mean you know what is what does the guy say to him um or to the detective you'll be born again just like me mm-hmm. he's um he's offloading all of his own anxieties and um his hate onto other people and and they you know it's it's like the uh you know he's 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 putting his sins on someone else like you're supposed to do with uh with christ right and there's, I think that, well, and they mentioned that the X was actually originally supposed to be a cross, and that something got lost in translation through the history of like fucking broken telephone with these drifters, because uh, it's also implied uh, by the end of the film that the drifter himself is also possibly been sort of possessed by almost like his research in his own way and that he really doesn't actually remember who he is, that he's become like sort of like a vessel for this thing. Yeah. Um, but anyway, a vessel for a mind that's been transferred maybe across many generations through yeah, starting in like the 19th century or something like that. So yeah, yeah. yeah that's, 
the and and you only really start to realize it when or start to suspect when the the policeman is being interrogated and he starts sort of compulsively making the chop in the air but yeah they're they're making the sign of the cross the whole time and that's it's I, I didn't really think about this until after having seen the film the first time, but you know the the title "Cure" in this context is a, is an extremely morbid one, with the implication that uh, you know the only way to deal with these negative impulses is to to put them on someone else who's then going to commit murder for you. Right. Talk about a That's purging. That's the cure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. Ex- exactly. Well, I mean, he even talks about the idea too of. Like sort of he can see the things that are inside people, but he has been like hollowed out. And I think the suggestion obviously is that he is helping people hollow themselves out by, again, taking those things and having them sort of externalize them in differing horrifying ways and seeing. I thought what was really interesting was the scene where he activates um, the 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 surgeon woman. Because that's the one scene where we get to see him front to back hypnotize someone. Because the other yeah. ones, they usually cut away when the hypnotism starts. Which, by the way, one of my favorite shots in the movie, I posted it today, uh, when he fir- he does the first hypnotism. And it's the only time, uh, it's the only extreme close-up at the beginning of the film, other than the shot of the corpse, is of him with the lighter flame taking up the full right side of the frame and the left side of the frame being the guy's face and that's the first hint that we get of of any kind of like there's something trance like happening here but it always cuts away and doesn't show you his actual process of what he's doing same with the cop as soon as he gets him uh in trance you don't see anymore but with the surgeon woman you actually you actually see him look into her life and see a history of having to uh you know fight her way through a male-dominated field in medical school and that maybe that sort of had anxieties about men in her life. Yeah, he's like, you want to cut open a man. That's I, why you did this. Well, yeah, and then, <laughs> and, and then he immediately says, the treatment that you faced by men in your field, let's maybe we should correlate that to you performing surgery and cutting men open. Right. And then that's how we get you know those two things together mixed with him also drawing the X or cross on the, on the wall for her, putting that image into her brain. Uh, just those three things suggests, yeah, I'm going to go peel a dude's face off in the bathroom real quick, (laughs) Uh, which is just, again, one of the more uh, uh, viscerally horrifying elements of of the film. What I find interesting about that scene, too, is, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, but doesn't he also, he uses water to hypnotize her this time, right? Very very elemental, fire or water. Right, yeah, it was just interesting (laughs) to me because they then established that you know, he has other means of, of doing that. It wasn't just the, the, the one object itself, which I just, I, I don't know exactly what I feel about it. It's just, it, it, it adds a layer to it as if he has, you know, more of a supernatural power than that's just connected to this one item. Well, yeah, well, yeah. And, and, and again, to me, it reads as elemental. Like it reads to me yeah. as, again, he's, he's using like these very basic items that you can find in any point in history, basically. Right. 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 And, he, and so it, it, it kind of relates to like, obviously he wouldn't use some sort of modern device to do it or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, which, which I do think works and it makes him have to get creative. Like when she tells him you can't smoke in here and then he's like, well, I'll just pour I'll a spill glass of water. water. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. Spill, you know, the one thing, the one movie, a very different movie that it reminds me of is um, Le Samurai, the Melville film, Love where um, you're not sure initially at least what the hitman is doing, but you see these little bits of his procedure and you can begin to anticipate, it, just as in this case you begin to anticipate that, oh, you know, he's he's doing something with the lighter and then, 
you you ask what is he going to do now that he can't use it exactly um, so you're, you, you he gives you enough like narrative detail but yeah. also but not highlighting it in like a filmmaking way again it's mostly in these wide frames that he shows you just that one extreme close-up of the lighter that he shows you at the beginning and then for the rest of the film your eyes are on that lighter when he pulls it out because right. you're like fuck what is he going to do with that yeah. um and it's also great the bit with the water too because when he eventually starts trying to use it against the detective i was freaking like throwing shit when the rain started coming <laughs> yes. through and hit the lighter and the rain is coming down and I'm like oh no that's how he got the surgeon yeah. and then you see him start to hit the detective a little bit but then the, the detective interestingly because I don't know I, I again there's a, there's an element to here of that sort of like becoming the thing that you're trying to catch that is in a lot of these kinds of things hmm. but the, the detective seems very at once susceptible and vulnerable, but then also immediately afterward, he seems quite in control of the whole thing, which I think the drifter kind of registers and is why he seems to pick him maybe as possibly a new vessel. I was going to say, because even continues. once we get to, you know, the, the, the big the, the enemy, end yeah. where he, he has a piece of dialogue that says something along the lines of it's like, they always end up here. This is fate. Yeah. You know, so it did seem like he chose the detective specifically. Uh, whether well, yeah, and, and, and same with the wife in the opening scene is she right. says, "I know how this story ends." Right. This right. is the, this was very set in stone from kind of like the beginning of the film. This was the way that this was going to happen. Yeah. And and what's also fascinating about that is that because again, sort of in the history of great sort of like obsessive detective films, which this film um, would go on to inspire. Bong Joon Ho says that this is one of his favorite films of all time, and he's the guy who did Memories of Murder, oh, okay. which was inspiration for David Fincher's Zodiac. So like you can follow the trail here of sort of like obsessive detective movies um, here with with Kurosawa. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I've always found interesting about those and the thing that Kurosawa actually has spoken about when he was crafting this film is that he's less interested in the case and he's more interested in the way that a character changes through the case, mm, um, which yeah. is very much what those films are, are about as well. And the fascinating element of this is that he catches the guy and he solves this case like 45 minutes into this freaking movie. Yeah. And then you um, kind of just see him like deteriorate as a, as a man. Exactly. Because, because of his own personal curiosity, his own need for the answer to what actually happened. Cause Not it's over. Not just solve the case, right? Yeah, he exactly. He wants to know why. Because right? he's, because he's done. He's found the guy. They're convinced that he's done it. Even yeah. the other police detectives are like, yeah, this guy's a weirdo yeah <laughs> like of course this guy did it like i don't know how but we're gonna charge him like yeah. he's already being charged it's already done and this is like 45 minutes into the movie where they figured it, this all out and then the rest of the movie is this changing of vessels where the detective has become so obsessed with figuring out the why finding figuring out this sort of like more transcendent like metaphysical reason for this almost like he's terrified of this like sort of like mortality and he keeps talking about going on a trip with his wife when the case is done and she can see that the case will never be that, done yeah that's and not that the, he's like, full of shit yeah. It, well yeah there's there's like there's an element to this and i mean especially and when that he, definitely also gives like a, a bit of a a foundation to know what their relationship has been like well i well. mean when he drops her off at the um sanatorium or whatever it is that he drops her off at the mental Heartless. institution. Yeah. And the doctor just says, dude, you look sicker than yeah, her. Like, yeah, are you okay? The scene preceding that one is, is one of the most tense in the movie where 
you I, you know even even having seen this before I, I still get into that that sort of butthole clenching feeling of <laughs> oh my god he's going to murder her yeah no yeah, that bit is horrifying and it's actually one of the few bits in the movie where he gets very psychologically subjective into the point of view of a character because he yeah because you can see him steaming that. yeah exactly and and he the, sits there he throws the the slab of beef at the wall <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and and she is like out of frame uh, or out of focus in the back of the frame while he's sitting at the dinner table watching her come in. And he's so resentful of how she was weaponized. Her presence was right. weaponized against him while in his work. Yep. That, and he's so resentful of that that he has these split second edits where he's imagining grabbing a knife and stalking her. And you're just like flipping out because you've already seen what this guy's well, doing. Yeah. Yeah, you think it's going to happen. Well, and, why and, here, and it? here's the thing: is he has actually not been hypnotized. These are just his desires that could be weaponized right. again, the same way that and the other genius people... is that it's those things have been established in yeah. the audience's yeah. you know, perception. So you you just think, oh, death. Yeah, you know? like yeah. it it needs to be said that on like a filmmaking level, the way that Kurosawa expresses all of this to you without using dialogue and with you know solely using sort of like style and formal tricks and editing tricks and stuff like that is is pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, Another great hard cut, which is similar to that is when, uh, he feels that his wife, like he comes home and he thinks that the wife is hanging in the, in oh, the bathroom yeah. and he's freaking out. Like he's, he's on his it, knees and it, and it focuses tears. on him too. Like he's, he's, he's crying, he's screaming and then it lets you, uh, settle with him and then it cuts hard and it shows the the wife just like, making a smoothie like yeah. why are you on the ground are you all good bro <laughs> and it's just such a it's relieving but it's also just absolutely horrifying well, and, and, and that sticks with you and it's funny I'm pretty sure that happens before this part so that mm, immediately right. relief of like oh my god she's not dead yeah. immediately translates to I kind of want to kill her though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In like a really really perverse way. Absolutely. Another uh, just to show when he was uh, starting to starting to really get angry with the uh, what what's the the no name guys? Uh, he has a name by the end of it. It was Mamiya, something like that. Oh R- yeah, R- yeah, R- yeah, yeah. He's 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 Mister Mister Mamiya, and he's yeah, he's, yeah. He's, the, he's the drifter. And I love that little part where it's after he interrogates him in the in the room. And he sees him through the two-way mirror and throws coffee in his face. (laughs) And it's completely irrational. And it's just, like, for him. But I just, I love that moment because it was a a moment, uh, at least uh, one of the first moments you see his character break and stop being such a stoic you know, controlled character. So that was great. And it's funny too. Yeah. He, he, by, by the end of the film, like he's like basically as unhinged and volatile yeah. as any character in this movie. Oh, yeah. In fact, more so probably because <laughs> all of the other characters are very calm and peaceful while they're doing their killings. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. He, he is very, that's, that's a good point. It's like the, he's really the only person you see kill someone with, with anger, you know, yeah. with actual uh, human emotions. So that's interesting. Yeah, well, and and actually, by the end of the film, I do think the final killing, which if we do, you know, sort of like maybe make our way to the the climax here, right? Um, I actually do think that the first shots that he take he takes seem a little like like he's taking vengeance in a way. Yeah, yeah. And then the second round feels really dispassionate, where he's just like he he has those lines where he's like, "Do you remember everything now?" And, yeah. you know, there's this very lyrical image. One of the few times where, like, uh, Kurosawa, instead of kind of leaning towards the mundane, gets lyrical, mm. where uh, the drifter 
reaches his bloodied hand up at him, like kind of like reaching out towards him, right? Um, and then almost does painting like, and then does the X, and then yeah, does the the X cross type thing that he's doing, and then yeah, you just see the gun intrude the frame and four more shots, and then <laughs> yeah, and then empties that, and clip. then once those shots again, like as he takes the first or second one, and then the camera pulls back to like one of those mundane wide shots again, where he is just very simply dispassionately finishing him off yeah yeah um and by then like the transfer has been complete yeah um and yeah i find that the the way that again this this moves from being sort of like very creepily mundane and fatalistic to you know very sort of like all of a sudden psychologically subjective like that like really just fucks with your head <laughs> yeah yeah and he also finds very a, rewarding way uh, a way of like even though a lot of the time they're just kind of doing the work i found that i did kind of care about the uh the relationship between the partner and him especially once it gets to the end when the partner starts to have those kind of uh those visions it seems yeah and then and then he gets you know he breaks too. out of it walks along and it's in this nice one long shot and he goes into his room and right when the light comes on the the big x in the wall and you as an audience member just know what that means and he even uses that kind of excuse he's like well i just thought it'd help me think you know you're like no dude you you've been no but what a way to visually depict like how this has infected them right which is just that they're both having a what they feel is a normal chat in the room Yep. With a friend who's helping you solve this case. Yep. And then he goes into the room, flicks the light on, and when the light turns on in the back of the frame without changing shots, the X is revealed. That it was just hiding it, in the darkness right the behind whole them. Time, yeah. yeah. That's something that he um he really likes tricks like that. You know, lights going on and off. Um uh, you know, you'll have a long shot of a corridor and then the elevator doors close and it's a flat composition, then it opens up into that depth again. I, I think with a story this mysterious, you have to give people those little, it, just something material to seize on. Like, I never saw the movie itself, but what was that, uh, the one that, the, the trailer, it's the, the clapping to make the lights go on and off? Oh, light, was, l- uh, oh shit, was it The Conjuring? Yes, that's right, thank you. I, I, ne- I didn't see it, but... Um, yeah, because that's the one where the, the, the big moment in the movie is it's the, the, the woman looking down into the basement and she has, like, a candlelight and then right. hands appear out from behind her head and, and they do, do a clap, clap and the, the motion of the clapping blows the flame out. Right. Well, so it's, it's nice to have something like that where you create almost like a Pavlovian expectation. And um, it's difficult to talk about Kurosawa because his voice is so... It's so totally unique, and so I find myself um, sort of struggling to think of other films that, even if they're dissimilar, give me sort of the same feeling. And um, the ones I kept coming back to were, were films like um, Herzog's Aguirre, and, um, or, or even maybe like Terrence Davies' films, where it's almost as though these people are sort of wandering around in search of a psychology. You get the sense of... Uh, one of those very old long exposure photographs in which you have sort of the the solid shapes of houses and things and then all of these these ghost-like figures um, zooming around that that weren't in one place long enough to register. No, yeah, for sure. And I mean, he, he does, because like even working in, you know, a, a genre that, that, that people know, a kind of detective movie with supernatural elements a little bit, 
because I think he he cited as main inspiration for sort of like the content or the subject matter was the movie Seven by David Fincher. Oh, that was okay. what he has said that, and, and some of his color palette you can tell came from from there too, kind of like those dark greens and stuff like that. But again, he he just has this kind of very like mesmerizing rhythmic like mundanity to it that. I, I don't think I've seen replicated by any other filmmaker quite in this way. And the fact that Sean is like making reference to like what I would consider sort of like more slower, deliberate sort of art drama filmmakers, I think yeah. is, is astute because you know, like you're not, you don't commonly see things like this in genre movies, like, you know, the, the, having this kind of patience and yeah. this much faith in an audience to not get bored or to not. And, and I mean, I, Personally, I think that he has so much going on that that can't happen anyway. But yeah. it's just you're constantly trying to figure it out yourself. <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is it's just not a pedal to the metal horror movie no. in that kind of sense. A lot of its very creepiness comes from a very slow, gradual sinking feeling where you are slowly mesmerized yourself by this film and the way that it works. And I mean, part of uh, I think how that works too um, is I guess I'll call it a score. Uh, I don't know if it really counts as a score or not because it's really just a series of like repetitive tones and sounds yeah, and like yeah. kind of like hums and rings that and just ambient noise like the rain exactly and ambient or the, noise. the dryer I thought I thought that was funny because he always has as you said these droning soundtracks and then um, initially watching this movie I thought that the sound of you know the when the wife has turned on the dryer and there's nothing in it. Um, I just I just assumed that was another tone on the soundtrack, but then <laughs> then it's actually there's like an object in the movie causing it, which I I thought was maybe a joke about his uh, his his love of those kinds of ambient sounds. Well, yeah, because he sometimes does that with the fluorescent lights and stuff too. Like there's just like these weird hums and stuff that it, uh, that you know at, at first you're like oh that's room noise, and then eventually it will get louder or it will get so pronounced to the point where it's it, it's once again creepy, like it's intruding on what should be you know otherwise innocuous scenes. Like for example, that scene in the police station when all of the dudes are there trying to interview him, and you can hear kind of like this banging sound almost. Yeah. And what's fascinating about this scene is. Is, you know he's not giving anything over to the police and they all just start bickering in the back like who the fuck is this freak yeah. like what are we doing here um but kurosawa starts to establish the connection between him and the detective who brought him in who are sitting side by side and as he starts talking to the detective while they're all bickering in the back he says can you hear my voice and all of those sounds go away yeah. Every single one, it's completely silent, like they're in a void, except for the sound of his voice when that starts happening. Um, and it's not until the detective sort of resists him a little bit by throwing him up against the wall, yeah. which again returns to a wide shot, because uh, that whole sequence it, after the cops are bickering is That's done in close-ups. Yeah. And you, at one point, you don't think it's the personal. cops are in the room anymore. And then when he throws him into the wall, it cuts back to that mundane like office shot right. of all the and cops all of being like, looking, yeah, like, why reacting. did why did you just like push him into a wall? Like, what the hell was that about? Yeah. Meanwhile, yeah. we know that something like very supernatural was just happening between those two characters at that point. Yeah. Um, so again, the way that he will move between that, where he's just like, here's a mundane shot of an office with fluorescent lights and a bunch of cops standing around, like bickering, like assholes. Yeah. Um, and then he'll move into something what's more here. supernatural, yeah. metaphysical in that sense. Um, so Josh, you made the joke that, um, or maybe it wasn't a joke that, that the film feels like being hypnotized. Has either of you been hypnotized ever? 
No, Me? I haven't. Never. I'm scared of I it think... now, actually, watching this. <laughs> so, I think that, I mean, obviously they, they sort of fudge exactly how much effort it takes to um, uh, to do the induction in the first place. But um, I, I think as far as representing the experience of being entranced, it's, it's pretty accurate that, you, you know, like your vision is fixed on one thing, like the flame of the lighter, and um, you go kind of still. But um, what's interesting is that hypnosis isn't actually neurologically distinct from intense concentration. So if you've ever had the experience of, um, you know, being so into a movie that you forget your breathing and um, the moment you snap out of it, it's like, wow, how much, how long was I staring at the screen? Um, <laughs> I, I forgot that I'm a person named Sean who, who lives in a house and that's, that's literally the same thing as a hypnotic trance. Oh, okay. Interesting. Well, I think that he is trying to replicate that experience here by giving you these shots that you get so, again, in that way where you're looking yeah. at these wide shots and they're observational in that way where, like, you're searching them and he's giving you enough subtle details that you start looking for them and you're like, okay, where, where's the next one? What's happening here? Who's that guy? And then because he kind of rips it away from well, you and, and, and then and, pulls it back and then rips it and away. And because another genius point is that they, he shows you the face of the killer really early on so you yeah. know exactly who the guy is but his ability is obviously that he is going to make he's going to weaponize anyone right. so then you're watching everybody in the frame being like who's <laughs> yeah, who been is weaponized <laughs> yeah uh, and another thing that a lot of hypnotists use is um a low humming sound like mm. a like a white noise machine to because you get attuned to something that's constant and so it um it maintains your attention yeah, well, obviously we mentioned he does that a lot in this as well. So I think this is just like, honestly, like a perfect merging of like formal choices and subject matter. Um, right. And, and getting like the actual psychological uh, like experience of it. Because I mean, as we maybe pivot to the reductive rating round, which for, for you, Sean, is the part where we kind of enter final statements on the movie or any sort of like final scenes you didn't get a chance to talk about, um, as well as a rating between one and five. Um for, for me, I just think that the way that he uses like negative space and the way that he uses silence, it, this movie to me ultimately felt like, you know, as he's addressing, I'm not sure maybe sociologically what he's trying to get at necessarily, but it feels like sort of in that way we talked about with um, Night of the Living Dead that he's talking, he's getting at kind of like a violent sickness that is intruding almost like on a national level. Um, and what you kind of get the experience of is a character like howling into the abyss being like, why, why is this happening? Make sense of this to me. And as a character puts it in the film, it's just like, no one understands. Like, yeah. it's like you, you will never find this out. And what kind of the film transitions into is a literal psychological deterioration of not getting that answer of being like completely destroyed by that. And yeah. So the way that he just kind of depicts this kind of like diseased, unknowable abyss and the way that he relates it again to sort of like this almost like ancient occultism yeah. where again, after he kills the drifter, which by the way, he frees the drifter so that he can go and take him back to wherever his home base was so that he can murder him yeah. where he kills him. And then he goes over to like that phonograph where it sounds like uh, some, some one of the people who started this entire train uh, on like an old phonograph is like giving these sort of like cryptic hypnotic instructions to him. 
and which leads us kind of into like the final scene where he goes and he meets with a he just goes for food and he's finally relieved he's like i got that shit out of my life yeah and then the first person he talks to the waitress the last shot of the film is her going and grabbing a knife because he's just activated her her and then he does that thing again where he does the you know the hard cut and we have a that that view of the street yeah and then once again the music it's just like calm piano <laughs> like like nothing happened you know it's just uh he's constantly doing that push and pull and it's very effective yeah yeah but but either way it might be obvious by by my my talking about it but this is a five for me and i think nice. that specifically the way that this captures trying to like seek out and destroy like the abyss and instead finding yourself infected by it and the way that kurosawa depicts that both sympathetically but also not in a way that shows you know reveals something sort of like uh, obsessive and selfish about it at the same time uh, because no one will ever know and instead he's abandoned his wife uh <laughs> yeah that's too. like they don't even they have that the i think the shot before the diner is just her body being uh you know trolleyed on out of the hospital right yeah i think she's, so she's been cut and everything like that she dies at the end i believe if i'm not mistaken the wife doesn't she at the at the at the mental hospital because they pull up with a body mm. that's all cut up sean am i am i incorrect on that that was my interpretation as well. Oh, yeah, well, see, there, there's a detail I maybe didn't even pick up on it's after vi- watching well, it three what times. I, what I liked about it too is that once again, I got he so does caught that, up in the conversation with him where they were dropping her off. Yeah, th- he does that like so, kind of two second shot where it's just like there's the body, and then boom, you go to the. I think you go to the diner scene. After so the that. implication was that he cut her up. I don't know. Let see, me because there is that shot where he goes to grab the knife. Oh, that's true, but isn't that outside the hospital though? So it would have to, if he did, but, he'd but, have to but, go but, back but, but to But that's the why hospital. he was taking her to the hospital. You're saying that's when he drops her off there. Well, no, what I'm saying, he drops her off. Oh, yeah. And then he, he does what he has to do with, mm. with uh, Mamiya. Yeah. And then, and then after he deals with him, there's a oh. shot in the hospital of a girl being trolleyed and she's dead. Like, clearly dead, very dead. Oh. And she's got the X uh, on her chest and then it cuts to the diner scene. And, and it's almost as if he's like forgotten about his wife in a way. Oh, completely. Here, he, uh, he's so at ease having just accepted this vessel into his life. And yeah. partially you think because he knows the answer. Right, the yeah. answer is that he's a part of it now, whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, he it's has sort sec- of joined forces with it. So, yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'll just uh, give my scores and, until you're t- done there, Sean. Uh, I'll, I'm going to give it a four out of five. Oh, uh, this to me, no, it's just okay. here's it's the okay, thing. Yeah. <laughs> This is the thing. I the first time I watched this, I also gave it the four. Yeah. But I just felt very overwhelmed by it, and yeah. I was it's, that it is a lot cross, to take in on a yeah, first viewing. Like for anyone who, watching you know, for the first time, which there probably will be some. Yeah. This this is a pretty like uh, it, it's, it's it's a heavy. It, one. It's just a film. He doesn't guide you through it. No. He doesn't hold your hand through it. It's really just like right. a you have to sit there and experience something, and it's not a fun experience. Yeah. Necessarily. And I it's will say, bleak. like after you know doing this show for a year and a half, I've, yeah. I've been able to pick mm-hmm. up on certain uh, uh, film techniques and things like that. So I definitely, it did speak to me quite a bit more this mm-hmm. time around. It's just, I was still felt a little overwhelmed by it uh, mm-hmm. still, but that the thing is, is I can't actually wait to watch this again. I know that I'm going to get more details out of it. Uh, it, it, he well, just yeah, I got to find out what that subtlety. detail is about that dead woman because somehow yeah, I so, totally blanked on it having watched yeah, this movie. But yeah, I'll give it a four out of five. Go ahead, Sean. 
Oh, sorry. I actually have the um, the film open in a, a window on my computer, and I checked it, and it's... Can yeah, we it's, check it's, the record? <laughs> yeah. Yes, to, to check the record, he, it definitely ends with the wife being murdered right before the uh, the diner scene. Okay, okay. Fascinating. So, and so who killed is, her? Did he kill right, her? Right, that's what I was kind of like... It felt almost as if she did it herself because no one else is there but i i mean it's not really given to you so i'm not sure right i mean and it, i would like to think regardless he didn't go the all visual the language the of that would tell you that he is responsible for yes, that definitely. regardless i would like to think he didn't go all the way back to the hospital not to pick her up but to stab her <laughs> <laughs> that would be really really disheartening so i don't know <laughs> either way it sucks but all right a rating for you sean uh, for me it's a five out of five nice yeah I'm sure it'll get there for me, any, boys and girls. Any <laughs> any any uh, moments or scenes or techniques we didn't mention that you want to highlight, or do you think we did it? I think I think we've done it pretty thoroughly. <laughs> yeah. All right, good stuff. Well, we always ask just in case, but yeah, okay. Well, th- I think that will wrap it up for Cure 1997, and we are going to be right back, and we are going to be talking about uh, his direct follow-up, Serpent's Path. 1998 so if you want to watch some more kiyoshi kurosawa this is the way to do it although i understand this one might be a little harder to find we actually had (laughs) to have someone rip their physical dvd copy we had to get one for us us, uh, to get it sent to us because it's a very (laughs) difficult film uh to find so someone's got a blu-ray this shit because it's great and we're going to be talking about it real soon It will actually take us a little bit into Serpent's Path, which is one of the bleakest sometimes funniest movie I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. so. Well, and it's so, as I'm glad but, you but, said but we, that. But we won't spoil that. We'll save that for the actual thing. Yeah, yeah. So let's let... We, we should we, maybe just jump into yeah, it. Yeah, we should just jump into it because Jamie and I do this all the time where, where we'll we start, start talking, talking about the movies that we've yeah. seen and then we'll forget to say it on the actual episode and then we're yeah. like, God, Damn. <laughs> yeah. So it always happen when I'm in the elevator. I'm like, I didn't mention that. So maybe that's just it. We'll just say we're in. Yeah. Welcome back, <laughs> there folks. It is. We are back. We are talking <laughs> Serpent's Path. Uh, 1998, the uh, Japanese uh, Yakuza film directed by uh, Kiyoshi Kurosawa, and this time not written by Kurosawa, but instead written by uh, Hiroshi Takahashi, um, most famously known for his um, uh, Ringu films, which eventually would go on to get uh, English language remakes that some people like, some people don't like. (laughs) Yeah. that's 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 how I think they, I remember liking the first one. That's that's how they go. Um, but uh, broadly, Serpent's Path. It, it, this one's a hard one to describe because the plot doesn't describe what's actually happening in this film. I don't think. Um, yeah. But broadly, it is about a sort of like former low-level yakuza member um, called. Uh, uh, I think his name is Miyashita. Yeah, Miyashita. Um, and we don't know he is at first, correct? Because isn't that kind of like unveils with his character? Because at first we right. feel like his motivation is just purely to get vengeance because his daughter was killed. Yes, and well, and and, and the film uh, starts like like it like in media res too, like just in the straight yeah. in the middle of events, they yeah. are kidnapping a guy who they think has killed 
his Yashida's daughter. Yeah, Yashida's daughter. Yes, quite brutally um, too. Quite yes. Uh, they repeatedly described over, yeah, over and over over and over again um, with the help of his friend uh, Najima, and what they kind of find is a little bit of a sort of farce ends up happening a very mm. brutal bleak farce um not unlike a coen brothers-esque type thing where <laughs> they every single person that they kidnap and torture in an abandoned like dilapidated warehouse to get answers about the death of his daughter everyone points a finger at the next guy and then it kind of almost becomes a montage of them like grabbing different people people I'm like this uh, guy did it for where, sure <laughs> where no one is like guilty but no one is really innocent either. Yeah. Because uh, everyone, uh, as the film progresses, is involved in kind of a child sex trafficking ring as the sort of like plot un- unfolds. But he can't figure out exactly who did this to his daughter. And as the film kind of progresses, Kurosawa kind of gets at the point of not one person was responsible for it. Again, it's right. the difference between action and I think responsibility, which was yeah. there was a little bit of that in, in, in Cure. For sure. Um and because a little bit of like free will aspect in that as well but um this really takes that and extends that to like a completely different level and kind of makes it six subject matter which has a absolutely horrifying punchline which we will get to later in this discussion i think but again kurosawa back again i think we also mentioned that uh, at the top of the show kurosawa basically did this on on a dare on like a <laughs> can you can you make two films with this limited amount of money in one month using the same crew to reduce the amount obviously the amount of money and only using like four locations what i wouldn't do to have that kind of skill <laughs> yeah uh and again he applies this sort of like restrained distance and these carefully composed like wide images and subtle camera movements con- continuing some of the alienation and like ennui in the face of horror that we saw in cure and instead funnels it into what is kind of like broadly a, a very bleak, sometimes grimly funny um, y- Yakuza movie. Um, but Sean, from what I understand, you have a very funny story about your first time watching this film. So uh, a few <laughs> years ago, the um, the Japanese embassy in Denver did a 35-millimeter film series that was like a, a Kiyoshi Kurosawa films that were otherwise unavailable in the U.S. Um, they, they also did Cure Impulse, but the others were... Um, were ones like this that are very hard to find. And the way that they advertised it through the University of Colorado was that they described Kurosawa as a cross between Yasujiro Ozu and Alfred Hitchcock. (laughs) And so, yeah, so I I saw this movie with an audience that consisted entirely of of senior citizens, married couples. Thinking they were going to go see Vertigo? (laughs) They were were like, Ozu? I love Tokyo Story. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they they were not happy by the end of the film. Oh god. That's hilarious. They were probably just devastated. <laughs> and and of course they they all loved the one that I didn't care for that was uh written by film students, but oh. um yes, they they were not happy about this one. Interesting. That's I hilarious. I don't know why this film does not test you on any level. <laughs> no. Um by putting you into the point of view of people like hunting down and torturing people who you aren't convinced of their guilt. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, that's something he does interesting too at the beginning is where, you know, the, the father establishes what the crime is. So we as an audience kind of go, well, that's, that's brutal. That's disgusting. Right. 
So then all the people he suspects, you you don't know it's them or if it's them at all, but but you have this kind of feeling where you're like, well, if you did do that, you're a bad person, right? Well, so you're kind of on the father's side, but you're not given enough information to really know that you should be. Well, here, here's, and that's interesting. Here's the way that I, because I, I think that you're right that there is something unique about the way that he positions you in this, but the yeah. way that I think he actually gets at it is by not having the actual because again i think another movie of someone scene. or well and not having that experience happen like i feel like in any other movie like this like shit um, it actually very uh broadly reminded me of that new death wish movie that eli roth did, okay. for example yeah. where you get <laughs> when we say broadly where, we mean yes we do not want to compare those where two. <laughs> but but that's what another movie like this would do where you yeah. get 15 20 minutes happy family right oh, no they were all murdered right. and now he's on a mission for vengeance absolutely this opens up in the middle of the mission for vengeance where you don't know what exactly has happened right so so, so you're not immediately empathetic to his grief because you you don't fully understand even why it's there or what they're doing but i would argue i think because you're used to what you're saying yes. is that for me when i was sitting there mm-hmm. i was just on board with like okay it's a vengeance story you well, know see, but see that and I, I think you're right i think yeah. that he uses the genre replay of like of course yeah. you're on the on board with the father getting revenge for his daughter right but he complicates that by not actually going through the experience of having you experience that grief and that empathy yeah, for him absolutely. first because you're introduced to him already in like a violent vengeful craze <laughs> yeah uh, yeah before you even know who he is or what's happened to him right yeah so i think that he deliberately complicates that experience for you of you know you're introduced to violence and ve- and this violent vengeance before you even understand why it's happening. <laughs> yeah. And and once you find out, you're obviously sympathetic to that. But again, he's already kind of got you off kilter. Like he's already <laughs> yep. messed with you that you're kind of like, well, yeah, of course I'm sympathetic to that, but there's something still off here. So that experience is kind of how he begins this movie. And again, sort of elliptically reveals details as the film goes on to you. And uh, especially of interest is his friend who's doing with this with them, who otherwise is like a mundane physics teacher. Yeah. Who you're like, dude, why are you involved in this at all? And I think one of the lines he, he has is he was like, like the most I kind of ex- wanted to try something like this. And you're like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Because the thing is, the whole time, he's the composed and collected one. Yeah. And we only see him as a physics teacher. You're like, it really seems like you've done this before, man. <laughs> like, Because the, the father who we find out is in at least somewhat ties with the Yakuza. I think he's their salesman or something like yeah. that. He is freaking out a lot of the time and very unhinged. He and works at the Yakuza factory. Sorry, I had to get that joke in there. <laughs> <laughs> he's very uh, unpredictable, whereas the teacher is just... You know, it, it, it appears as if he knows exactly what to do next. And uh, it, it's odd to have that, that difference there. This It reminded me, or the other film that it brought to mind was that um, Denny Villeneuve film Prisoners, which mm. uh, never quite worked for me because I think that it very quickly announces its intentions to be like a, a philosophical film about what happens to a good man pushed to the edge. Whereas in this film, you're still grounded in all of these little details. And I think the reason that he's able to get away with comedy, including comedy that verges on slapstick at points, is oh that, um, right. yep. you know, it's it's a film that's less about um, the process of investigation or the mystery, because the mystery is quite simple, and more about things like, uh, you know, I just, I love 
what being chained to the wall does to their performances. The fact that the um, the one somewhat higher level guy who they grab golfing stands up and tries to in- intimidate Miyashita, but um, because his his arms are changed to the wall, all he can kind of do is like lean at him, <laughs> yeah. and he he ends up looking like a child on a you know swinging on the monkey bars or whatever. <laughs> And, and oh then, yeah, well, because and that's the part too where Najima walks over and just stands in front of him until he sits down. <laughs> like, yeah. like, and again, he's a teacher, so you get that that's probably what he does to students. So yeah. there's like a joke in there. <laughs> and um, I think that, or yeah, and and the other bit where they there's kind of a role reversal between the the low level mook they grab in the first scene and the the golfer and. Um, you know they 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 bring them the trays of food and then and then later the guy is yelling for the uh, uh, yelling to go to the bathroom and and the first guy says don't even bother like it's like <laughs> I, I know the ropes I've been here longer than you have yeah and he starts um, like spraying him with the hose he's like you're gonna want to drink some right of like that. like <laughs> right because the like story is so simplistic here it really does become both a comedy and a horror movie mostly about yeah. methods yeah of the, the process of actually doing this hunt, how they're doing it, how exactly they end up feeding these people or bathing them. I love the detail, too, where the one guy's like, again, he's been there longer than the other guy, so he's just like, they're they're showering them with water, so he's like, dude, they're not going to give you water, so like you might as well take your <laughs> yeah. drink right now, dude. Drink <laughs> up, buddy, this yeah. is it. <laughs> I also love... And oh, go ahead. The, um, you know, there are a lot of, there are not a lot of films about child sex trafficking in which you could get away with like one of those Gilligan's Island cuts in which one of the characters says, oh, uh, Hiyama is an awful golfer, and then it cuts to him on the golf course. Um, <laughs> Hitting the worst or, or shot like, of his life. Yeah. <laughs> or or the, the scene, I think that the funniest scene in the movie after all of these escalating incidents of imprisoning more people, and then they um, they go into Otsuke's old house, and someone is prisoned, imprisoned there, you know, <laughs> when he opens the bathroom door, and it's like, oh, so... <laughs> People, people are being chained up here as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like that's that's the most like Coen Brothers esque slash like Tarantino esque moment. Yeah, is is when they open that bathroom door and that guy's already chained up and they're like, wow, there's there's other weird like torture shit going on here yeah. that we already been another, privy to. Another great part we were mentioning, kind of like elements of almost slapstick, is when they have the uh, the body at the golf course. The golf course, and bit. and it's they amazing. have that wide shot of them running down the hill, running down the hill. Yeah. The body along, and the the rest of the guys are trying to chase them and shooting them, and it's just, it's fantastic. It's it's so funny, but you know the uh, you know the seriousness of the well, situation. Well, and, and the way that that scene is structured, where they have him hit the poor shot, the guy goes after, and he's just like, ha ha. How was? Or the guy tells him, "Good shot," like trying to be like positive or something. Yeah. And the guy's like, "How the fuck was that, was that a good, a good shot? shot? Go, go retrieve it. my ball." <laughs> and the guy runs in there to go and grab it. So you get the hierarchy there of of the yakuza. Um, but yeah, they go down there. They tase him. They put him in the body bag, and they are about to drag him away. But then they see a woman walk by who they think saw them. So they run up. Turns out. Again, this is like a sick twisted joke. The woman's blind, so she couldn't have seen them there doing that. (laughs) And then they get into a fight with her, and it turns out that Uh. she's pretty damn good at fighting. And she starts kicking their asses, and that is when... So they're getting beat the shit out of by a blind woman uh, that they thought saw them 
put the or take the body and that is when you get the huge wide shot of them dragging the body across the golf course <laughs> being chased by a bunch of guys with guns firing at them oh it's so funny and yeah like i that was like laugh out loud like yeah. that was that was when i i was like am i supposed to be laughing out loud at a movie about child sex trafficking murder stuff <laughs> yeah, like exactly. maybe i don't know we'll see uh well, and the the disabled woman assassin thing has has been done so many times but this is the one case in which I found it pretty eerie because um, she's very composed. She's she's the one character in the entire movie who's dressed well, um, yeah. And you know she she looks upper class, and but people talk about her as though she's like an animal, and the and the only sound you ever hear, hear her make is this sort of this guttural scream when she comes across the body of. It, it's it's not clear. Maybe a son or a brother. I think it's a brother. I think it's her brother. Yeah, yeah because I think the brother comes back later. Um, he gets up from his wounds to try and help yeah. her. Oh, you're, and, and, is that the same yeah. person? Yeah, it's the yeah. same person. Yeah. So he and he says sister. Yeah, but yeah, it's, it's it's true. The way that they sort of like detail this, where you can kind of see, like, I feel like that's actually maybe one of the most like sort of like vividly emotional parts of the movie. Weirdly mm-hmm. enough. Uh, yes. Uh, because otherwise this seems very detached in the same way that the physics teacher seems kind of like detached from all of this, because as the movie kind of progresses, he actually becomes the more central figure by the end of the film, not um, who you think it would be the father, because as it's sort of revealed over the course of the movie, the father was actually involved in this Yakuza ring um, selling the tapes of child porn. And I guess pretending that he didn't know what they were, even though it's it's like, you're working for the, how could you regardless of if you didn't, you're still working for the Yakuza. What do you think they're doing? Well, yeah, I mean, one of the first lines, of the movie which is again Kurosawa just must really love this idea of having this happen because he did it with Cure as well where the, you you know how this or I know how this ends but he does this here which suggests the ending where the father asks him while they're in the car driving to kidnap the first guy and he says what yes. if it's the wrong guy and he says they're all they're involved. all involved anyway yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the father starts laughing. Yeah. <laughs> and it's and it's just like, yeah, dude, that's really funny until you get to the end of the movie. Right, I was going to say, because it's like, then it leads to him just saying, all right, well, I don't really need a specific answer. Everybody is, uh, I think the name is Araga. Well, yeah, so because- he just starts... He's like, are you Erica? No. Shot in the face. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, are you Erica? No. Well, you are. Shot in the face. You know, it just, he becomes completely unhinged. Well, and, and, and it led to a weird perverse feeling because not knowing where this movie was going and part of sort of like the, the way that this movie works is that you're sort of investigating differing motivations and kind of like weird half truths and like people yeah. manipulating each other as it goes. Like you, a lot, you see a Especially lot. Especially that teacher. You see a lot of the teacher having his own agenda on the sidelines. And they break that within like the first half hour too, which is interesting because they spend the first half hour, at least establishing Mm -hmm. that these guys might have a friendship and they're, they're really partners in this. And then he starts to hint towards the teacher being, you know, a a little bit more knowledgeable of everything that's going on. When I think he starts to talk to the two prisoners and say, this is the plan. And even them he's manipulating because we have the scene after in which he makes one of them kill the other in yep. order to go. So this the physics teacher is kind of like really fucking with everybody. Yeah, he's he he becomes like more he becomes the more mysterious element of all yeah. of this as the film and you spend a lot of the film thinking about like because why is this happening? Why right. is he doing it this because way? Like what is 
what point, is he withholding from everyone? Right, and at this point, once again, we still don't quite know that the the father was was within the yakuza. So we're thinking, oh, is this physics teacher actually like a bad guy? Yeah, you know, because we don't quite get those answers yet, and and then he just geniusly, you know, unveils things as it goes slowly, but, but speaking perfectly. of which the, the, the camera move in that scene that you just mentioned, the one where he makes them, uh, uh, like oh, fight the to the death shot? where he hands a, he hands them a gun. Yeah. Well, it's funny cause he, he does this shot earlier in the film, very early on in the film when they first established the abandoned warehouse. And there's right. this amazing thing where like the father immediately starts getting heated. And this, this is again, another joke, but it's a really bleak joke where within like 30 seconds of interrogating the guy, he's just like red hot mad and he pulls the gun out yeah, like he's gonna kill the guy. guy it's like dude <laughs> like give it some time man. And, and 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 the scene starts out similarly to that bathroom shot in cure where it's framed outside the door mm. where it's outside the warehouse area and then the camera slowly pushes in as the teacher enters to like stop him from just killing the guy they're they're interrogating within 30 seconds of the interrogation starting it pushes yeah. in as things heat up and then the guy scares him with the shot and then walks out. And then they sort of like start walking out together and the camera pulls back again outside the room. And then it pans over and reveals this very mundane space outside of like a torture chamber. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They uh, almost have like it's an office and a coffee maker. Yeah, and yeah. Well, yeah, there's a coffee maker. Just and the like, that's room. such a funny joke because when he throws that gun in to have them kill each other, it repeats that shot where they walk out like they're going to the break room while those guys decide yeah. their fate. And the teacher and, and nonchalant just like pours a coffee. Yeah. He's real chill about it. What I love too is the the difference in, in performances here where the father, you can see it in his face. He's, very, he's still very nervous and and kind of uncontrolled, whereas the the teacher has that you know composed. He's ready to go. He just handed two yakuza guys a gun to kill each other, and he's just having his coffee. And it's just, it's uh, it's just great to watch. Oh yeah, yeah. and then that dead silence, you know, punctuated a little bit by yeah. the guys like arguing with each other. Gunshot, dead silence. Yeah, and you're just like, fuck. Yeah. Well, but this is this is a movie like um, almost like Sonatine in which um, you know they're playing darts, they're um, they're cooking food, just the the ordinary things that you wouldn't think about people having to do if they were you know chaining someone up in a warehouse and torturing him. And I, I guess one of the things that makes it so unnerving is that for all of the silliness, it's it's those things that keep you there present with them constantly. Um, and actually thinking about, oh yeah, what would happen if he had to go to the bathroom? <laughs> yeah, no, for real. Yeah, like, that's the, true. like there's a, again, there's a lot of detail to this that like is outside of like plot. I would yeah. guess. Like, and it's I, a lot I of became like even more it. deflated every single time they just poured the food onto the ground because <laughs> they do that like five times, and every time, even though I know these people are scum, I'm just <laughs> like, oh man, you gotta <laughs> eat noodles off that. <laughs> <laughs> like I love the multi-layered shot where there's um, Otsuke in the foreground. Um, is is I couldn't make out quite what it was, but um, it looks like he's he's like slurping noodles off of the <laughs> oh, yeah. floor. Yeah. And, what then, a gross shot. and then the other guys are in the background. Yeah, it's I, I also love the way that um, Miyashita uh, sleeps with the gun clutched to him like a security blanket, like <laughs> yeah. shuddering and. One of the, uh, I, I was explaining to you, like, when I described the film briefly to you yeah. when we were texting, I said uh, ghostly. And the reason yeah. I said that was because, like, throughout the film, 
you don't see a lot of like normal people. In fact, like mm. when they're on the street and they're driving, you know, it's a completely blank street. There's like just fog. It just seems like they're in a, more of like a purgatory. In, yeah. In, in well, I mean, sense. I mean, and, and the only like pedestrians, we'll say, or civilians that they see, and the are, physics teachers are, are, are like the children, right. who again are the way that it sets this up is the potential victims, right. which so is motivation like for why the teacher's almost. doing what he's like doing when like we eventually this, kind of see yeah. it. Yeah. So what, what you're seeing is like this weird underbelly of like a child sex trafficking ring and that like right. the, the sort of like farcical hierarchy and goings on in it. And yeah. then you're seeing, you know, sort of like the innocence that it would plan to abduct and corrupt. Yeah. And um, in fact, you uh, even hear children playing in the background during the, the very first abduction. Um, oh right! A detail yeah. I didn't I didn't notice, but I might have to rewatch and pick up on that one because that would be a great. Because again, all it is is there's like the yakuza, and there's the children. Like that's those yeah. are the only characters of this movie basically in any capacity. And, right. And like Cure, it takes what is initially a question of of who is the one person responsible, and sort of um, generalizes and generalizes the question until um, not only are more individuals implicated. But you have this sense almost of it being some kind of like a social disease. Yes. And anyway, I think he should remake this film in 2020 and they should have like the the final guy that he kills, uh, you know, where he says, Uh. you're the one I hate most of all. They should make it like the social media guy. Who was running the uh, like the Twitter account for this, um, for like the, the video company that was the front company. Yeah. And then at the end, he's like. You're the one I hate the most, and then he puts a like a laptop in front of him that's just doing an endless scroll of. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's um, amazing. Some some uh, like marketing degree kid. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. I didn't know. <laughs> but um. But no, it reminded I, me. I think that you're absolutely spot on. By the way, about the idea of sort of a more collective responsibility. I think that that's like the yeah. the point that he really really hits on because. Um, about halfway through the film was when I realized there was something sort of like off and strange about this. Oh, and by the way, I had your point about your ghostly thing too. Mm -hmm. Also, because there's the small child in the class who keeps reminding him of his kid who the teacher is protecting and he keeps playing that video back of his kid, both when he repeats the vicious things that happen to her and also to like comfort himself when he's talking to her about getting revenge. So that also I think applies to your, your ghostly idea there too. But... I reminded of that because halfway through the film is when they get back in the car and it's shot. They mu- I, he must have shot these like at the same time or something because they almost yeah. look exactly the same where they get back into the car driving around looking again for more people. And it, it's almost a joke how similar it looks to the opening scene because yeah, they do the cut back from the point of view to the street. Yeah, and then to exactly. Them, like the, the he same, cuts it yeah. the exact same way. I thought way. that's what he was doing at first. Like he's doing, almost doing like a like a really, really gross Groundhog Day <laughs> where he's like, you just have to keep trying to get gain vengeance for, yeah, for your and, daughter's death. And not knowing where this was going, I, I thought it was that, like, it seemed to me like it was going to point to the, maybe the teacher being uh, sort of like the bad guy in that he was sort of like weaponizing this dude's grief yeah. for like ulterior motives. And That's what I thought my too. immediate thought was for like violent thrills because he, he, he said that line about the idea of like, I've always wanted to do something like this. Yeah. Um, and the only other time that you see him is just in the physics room doing math. 
Right, exactly. So, so I mean, so, it's so a very like, stark contrast. Well, yeah, well, yeah, and it, it feels like maybe he's like getting out of that life. He's doing something exciting. Yeah, um, and that they can, you know, they can feel justified in their actions, even when it's like unclear of how involved sort of like any anyone is in this in this kind of thing, and what results is kind of like just a a, a very quick spiral downwards yes. into like like total carnage where you find yourself completely entangled in the details of this situation that has already happened and basically you're trying to untangle yourself and Kurosawa is basically kind of getting at this idea almost that like it's really really difficult to do that and yeah. in fact you're just going to find more complications and more strange details like another guy tied up by uh, the Yakuza in the house <laughs> right. or like when they eventually go to the main place and it's basically like a confusing labyrinth of just like, you can't even tell who's who when they're shooting each other at that point. You're just right. like, okay, people are just shooting people. <laughs> yeah. Kiyoshi yeah. Kurosawa is, is one of the only directors who could have a shootout in an abandoned warehouse that really looks like it's taking place in an abandoned warehouse. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's not, you know, abandoned warehouse set. It's, uh, there probably there's no other director since Tarkovsky who's been more dedicated to uh, ruined, overgrown structures and and dripping water and yeah. mud. No, 100. percent I mean that the, the the shootout climax when they eventually have sort of secluded the entire yakuza because instead of finding the individual killer, uh, they basically just uh, the teacher has set it up. And manipulated the entire situation so that he can basically get the entire Yakuza into this warehouse. That's what's happened is he's he's pissed them off by kidnapping some members and told them where to be and everything like that. And he's led the father on this journey of finding the individual responsible and basically just had all of the individuals in one place. And he's got everyone there. And him and the teacher just start unloading on everyone in this really, really complex shootout of that's like, again, sort of almost farcical and how things go wrong for people. And it's really complicated in the way that like people are on different like platform layers, but yeah. also like there's weird architecture here where like there's weird poles blocking it. One of my favorite shots in the movie is one where the father is hiding behind like a pillar yes. and, 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 and the, it, it pans across and you can see him freaking out and he's trying to shoot. He's, he's thinking about like, like in a badass action movie, like whipping around the pillar and shooting someone. And he does it three times because he keeps thinking he's finally got his shot. And every time there's some other piece of the architecture that's like obtruse, <laughs> like, like obfuscating his vision. So he yeah. can't get the shot. Yeah, <laughs> and every great. time he's like, finally, I'm going to do it. And then he's like, Oh fuck, I'm going back. <laughs> and he's like, I'm going to do it. <laughs> and yeah, he as really far takes as that the sense coolness of, out of the action yeah. this, you know, <laughs> in a great way. As, as far as the sense of sort of little glimmering details or of um, things other than humans springing to life within these static frames, uh, two of my favorite shots in any Kurosawa film, first of all, when he's um, he has his back to this, um, this wall of abandoned televisions, and all of a sudden they come to life. Oh, right. And that... That is a crazy moment yeah, of like heightened that. reality for this film. And then you start hearing the um, the recording that says, "I also had a daughter." Mm. And then, um, and then also, I love the shot where the uh, the um, crippled woman ha kills somebody with her cane sword. He collapses into this um, puddle of water, and you can it's it's from some distance overhead. 
and um, you can just barely see the blood diffusing into the puddle around him. Yeah, that was great. I also love uh, that that scene, like you were just speaking on the the television sequence, um, like where you just see the father kind of, like because the whole time he has him looking at the video camera, looking at the footage, and now at this point it's the only connection he still has with his daughter. So it was really emotional to see him see it on a bigger scale, and he actually hugs the television as if it's like his daughter, you know, because mm. it's like the last connection he has. With yeah, her. but that also there's like ten to like twenty screens, so right. like it, it's almost like overwhelming the entire yeah. peripheral vision of like what you can see. Yeah, and yeah. then the film ends with him, in fact, seeing another video of his daughter. Except rather than being the one that he took of her when she was happy, it's um it's implied to be the video of her. Um, rape and murder. Right, right, right. Which, which we what should, if, we should get to this final moment because it is absolutely just before brutal. we do. Oh, uh, yeah. There was one sequence, and I think it actually happens like right before this. Yeah. Uh, is when he's walking down the street and he looks to the left and he sees that little girl that I believe is in the physics class. Yes, and he seems to almost have like a moment where he. Does, does he, do you think it's just him seeing his daughter in that girl? I, I think it is. Or was well, be, it something because bigger? For, for me, I'd have to go back and take another look, but I actually thought he might have cast the same little girl. That's what I thought because it yeah. felt like a supernatural moment in a way. But, but, like, but, but her hair and her outfit is different, yeah. so I know it's a different girl, but I think he was trying to get at this idea of his daughter could have been any of those children, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So, and, and that's such... That's such a great moment because it's one of only a few moments in the film in which the the low hums on the soundtrack that we talked about in Cure go completely silent. Uh, there's this, you know, I, I think it's in slow motion. He um, He's looking into the darkness and you just see him looking, smiling, his smile falters. And it's only then that it cuts to what he's looking at. And it's this girl standing in... Uh, Standing in darkness among some uh, some parked bicycles, yeah. and I I think that it's an open question whether his smile is is because he's um, imagining his own daughter or because he is I I don't think there's any evidence that he's a pedophile, but it's it's certainly <laughs> tempting to wonder in the context. It's 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 a very sinister smile. It is. <laughs> You're right. It doesn't it doesn't come off exactly as I'm seeing the the dead daughter I haven't seen in years. It is coming off more of like a uh something mystery. Like a yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well I mean this directly pivots into um the, the finale. The the finale here. Oh, I I was going to say before we move on, but um well first of all that he does this once before with the the silence and the slow motion is um the the teacher comes out of the class on his own and looks down into the empty street. Not sure what he's looking at, right. but um, but then so so after um, Miyashita is looking at the the little girl in silence and slow motion, then there's that crash of sound as the uh, the train goes by behind her. Oh, oh right, yeah, right. Yeah, just yeah. such yeah. a like kind of again like like an, an in- interrupting moment, like just kind of something sudden like that. Yeah, and and you're just brought back to reality with this um this crash of noise. But yeah, move, moving to this very, very brutal finale. <laughs> yes, where, very bleak. Where uh, when I got to it, I was like, oh, of course. Like, this is the only way that this could have ended. Yeah. But, and it was weird that I didn't pick up on it because all the I details agree. are there. Like, I'm going to watch it again and I'm going to be like, wow, this was so obvious. Yeah. But it still surprised me. It did uh, too. Yeah, me too. I'm the same um, way. 
because the teacher has orchestrated all of these individual members of the Yakuza to get there so they can kind of like knock them all out at once. And it's implied that it's out of a um, defensiveness for his own students, for other children who might have get brought, brought up in this. Because whereas the father is seeing this as an individual journey of vengeance for his personal individual daughter, the teacher is looking at this as a more broadly on who is responsible for harming children. Right. Well, the um, teachers. Oh, sorry to interrupt. I didn't actually pick up on this initially, but um, it's the teacher also had a daughter who was murdered. So he recorded oh, the voiceover okay. part. He's he's the one who's giving the voiceover that says, "I also had a daughter," and the um, the girl that you see in the flashback who's at his side when he's um, when he's scrawling the equations on the pavement mm-hmm. is his daughter. Oh, okay. Is it? Because he says it's not in the movie. Oh, wait, does he? Yeah, he, because he, he, the guy, um, the father asks him directly, your daughter, and he says, no, my student. Oh, yeah. oh shoot, you're right. I'm sorry, I was mistaken. Mm-hmm. But it, it is possible that he had a daughter that also got lost, too. But I, I, for some reason, thought the recording was like recordings that the teacher got of the father and playing back his own recordings at him, because the video isn't of another girl. It's of his daughter, for sure. Yeah. Oh, you're right. I'm sorry. I was misinterpreting it. Yeah. So I, I think that that was the way that it went just because I think it hammers home the distinction between the father looking at it individually and the teacher looking at it collectively. Yeah. Because yeah. It would no, make you're it, right. Because it, it, I think that that would get muddled if it was the teacher also doing it for individual reasons. I think the uh, whole yeah. point of the teacher teacher's involvement of this is that he has he sees his role as an adult in a room filled of children responsible for the care of the children. Right. Right. And so again, similar to that opening line, he kind of sees what if it's the wrong guy? It doesn't matter. They're all involved. And of course the only way as we go down this path of tangential murder and violence of, you know, sort of like a web of it, Mm-hmm. Of course it has to come back to the father who was a part of the Yakuza and who was part of the child trafficking ring. And yes, maybe he wasn't the one shooting the videos, but he was the one happily making money selling the videos. Yeah. And so there is almost like this really horrific irony to the teacher making him watch a video that he would have sold. Um, yeah. And it's horrifying to him because it's obviously of his individual um, daughter. Um, and that is, I think, why the teacher says I hate you the most because you're someone who understands the pain that this causes and yes you understand it more on an individual level but like you understand it so it's just like you should have known better like you had a daughter like what are you doing right Right. Um, and yeah so the way that he ties or sort of like chains him up and gives him his last meal the same way that they've been giving it to all of the different Yakuza members throughout the film and then puts the video in front of him where he was putting the video of his daughter and yeah as Sean pointed out instead of playing the video of his daughter being happy playing the uh, purported video of her rape and murder which by the way I don't know if you've seen this film Sean did did Claire Denise steal this for Bastards I still haven't seen Bastards, oh, okay. actually. Well, sorry for spoiling Bastards. <laughs> no, <that's okay. laughs> um, but I really loved that film, and it it doesn't quite, on a detail level, have the same ending, but it does end on video footage of something horrifying happening that's implied throughout the film and sort of recontextualized in a in in 
a last minute way. And yeah. when I saw this, I was like, wow, that's like the exact same ending. And it hits really, really hard here, especially because of the way that Kurosawa constantly has you guessing this mystery throughout the entire thing. So again, somehow, despite the fact that this makes perfect sense. And when I got there, I was like slapping my forehead. I was like, you idiot. Yeah. <laughs> of course, <laughs> of course, this was the only way that this had to end. It's, it's similarly fatalistic the same way that sort of uh, Kier was in that way. Um, what was uh, what were you, what was your guys' interpretation of the the very end where it kind of it almost to me it, it seemed almost like a like a fate thing similar to cure with those lines of kind of like you were meant to to be here was it kind of like if you're if you're gonna go on this path that that kind of that ending is inevitable yeah do you know what I don't have a specific argument because I just for... love how they end it do you get it and the guy's like. <laughs> No. And then it cuts and I'm like, yeah, me neither. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I had a very, like, I don't have an argument a great way. for it in terms of like the actual sort of like narrative, like sure. what it adds to the ending that they already set up where sure. they could have, you know, ended on the father's screams or something like that in the right. uh, watching the video. That's what I was um, curious. I'm like, why they, they did that for a reason. You know, they had to do the, year as a meta textual joke of at the audience, like, yeah, like you just said, yeah. do you get it? <laughs> you <know>? <laughs> <laughs> cut. That was great. But I just, and, but maybe Sean, John, what, what was your read on that last scene? I have no idea, but um, <laughs> there you, I, you know what's interesting, though, is I'm on top of everything one. else, the um, the photography and the dialogue in that scene are different than in the the first time you see it as a flashback. Right. No, you're you're right, because yeah. they, they have a similar exchange, but it, it's it, like their positioning is different and the exact wording is switched up slightly. Yeah, I, I guess applying more sort of like dramatic or I guess sort of like ironic weight to it in the mm. sense of that, like who would have known that when this guy chose to become friends with this guy, that this was the guy who was going to kill him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. I wasn't sure if it, like, I guess if that, that might just be what he, what he was getting at. Cause it had to have done something with the physics too. Cause I mean, the equations are surrounding him, you know, I, it, it's, it always get, does a callback throughout the film. They're always going back. To yeah. The physics well, cause I, I definitely read it as that Kurosawa in his own way was kind of forming, forming this as kind of like a bit of like an equation of giving you these right. slight sure. details. Yeah, and yeah. I, I love the scenes where like he's walking through with the little girl and she's writing the formula and then he's seeing where she's going and he's picking up and then he gets lost and she starts going at it and then he picks it up again because yeah. that is sort of a replication of what we're doing as an audience at the same yes, time exactly. of sure. just picking up little pieces of information and then jumping a little bit to conclusions and Which then kind of getting and recontextualized. And then I guess leads to yeah. like that, that feeling we had at the finale where we were kind of like, well, of course this was where it leads. Yeah. You know, it's the only answer. So yeah, that's that's Yeah, cool. so then I think when he's looking at we have a shot of the guy looking at the entire equation and him going, do you not see? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's cool. Oh yeah. So I, really I, I like have that. a feeling that that's what he's, what he's kind of getting at a little bit with For that. Sure. But I'm glad we got to unpack that a little. Cause that ending was <laughs> like just the last 10 seconds there. was like, okay. And you know, it's funny because, um, even before having seen this film, I always thought of, um, uh, of course how his visual style is being, um, very precise in some respects and um, a little bit crude or rough around the edges in others, like the, the way sure. the camera movements are always a little rickety. So in a manner of speaking, it is sort of like a math teacher's scrawl or, a you know, yeah. um, an, an equation scrawled on a blackboard. I've, I've never liked the genre of, of fathers or other male figures getting revenge on, um, you know, sex traffickers or, or whatever who have... Um, harmed their daughters because to me the whole genre feels latently pedophilic in the sense that 
Um, you know, in the same way that in old monster movies, the pretext for having um, a monster paw at a woman is like, oh, that's, you know, that's just what, that's the monster doing it. It's because he's bad. And um, it becomes a, a pretext to show things that you couldn't otherwise. And, you know, it, it's something that always stood out to me in, I, I remember seeing this episode of Law & Order SVU and being like, you know, they really choose the most photogenic possible little girls to represent these characters to whom <laughs> awful things have happened. And it feels sometimes as though that the violence that the Avenger characters unleash against the the sex traffickers or whoever is um, is almost like a figurative violent denial that the audience actually has a certain level of prurient interest in common with the the killers or the the rapists okay like an almost a level of perverse interest on the audience's part oh, okay you know that you're right. getting because, to because you're going into an underground sex trafficking wing and you're like ooh, i've never actually been to one of those right very right. gross very weird what's going on in there yeah <laughs> and right. exactly but but you're you're funneling it through this idea of someone like but something righteously walking through right. it like something like, like, good is gonna happen yeah. yeah so I can watch this right so yeah. it's so so yeah it's I I guess that's I would, interesting yeah just sort of and, like a- answering a, a a sort of like perverse intrigue that people might have or something like that yeah yeah and similarly which, which, which is well, um, funny because uh, sorry to interrupt you but th- like that's kind of what the teacher does here is like right. th- that the teacher here basically takes that idea of hanging out with the good father righteously taking revenge and he's just like actually you are in systemically involved in this in this entire thing in in your own way right so yeah. it's interesting that the the teacher again sees more of a collective responsibility for this in the same way that kind of like cure did something similar about that about it's not just people physically doing actions it's people who enable it at the yeah. same time right yeah and so. that's that's kind of how I always felt about To Catch a Predator, where it's like, why do people really watch shows like this? And and there was there's always so much graphic detail. Like when they entrap these guys, they they show you um, snippets of the actual text conversations that get extremely graphically sexual. Yeah. And um, they're they're you know, I I would have to believe that if you watch that kind of stuff routinely, it's because on some level you do get off to, at at the very least, the idea of predators interacting with children. And I, you know, as far as I'm concerned, like the just as in in this movie, Miyashita is as guilty as the people perpetrating the actual crimes. I think that, you know, the the society that produces um, to catch a predator (laughs) is probably as as guilty. It's it's like at the the point at which you've turned this into a sport. Um, who's who's kidding who anymore you know (laughs) Uh, making making money on 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 a different industrial level (laughs) right exactly yeah that's interesting i didn't think about it that way (laughs) like the fbi so here's if you want to bring this into like sort of real world morbidity um my understanding is i read about this a while ago that the fbi actually disseminates like huge volumes of child pornography and other like um, you know, illegal material um, in an effort to entrap people. And so, you know, as a result, um, there's there's more of it out there that... <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's very bleak, and I think that one of the implications that I took away from the ending is that sort of the guilt for this, not only does it st- extend beyond these individuals, but it extends almost to the people watching the movie, you know, to us sitting here talking about Serpent's Path. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he entrapped us. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Damn it. 
God damn it. He got us. Well, I got got, that's for sure. Yeah. I was definitely, uh, similarly to Cure, like pretty mesmerized and like constantly on edge trying to investigate this one. Yeah. I was like, yeah. damn. But again, by the time you hit the end, you're just kind of like, of course. Yeah, that's exactly how I <laughs> So it was an interesting reaction. But I think uh, maybe moving on over to the reductive rating round. Uh, fuck. I almost talked myself up to a five, but it's a first watch, so I'm going to go with the four on it um for this yeah, one i have a similar I, I, feeling I, I, you, I started with, with the you. four but this film actually has got richer for me having this conversation so i hope that that happened for other people as well yeah. and i don't even think that i need to really even go over a whole lot um yeah, we, do- we dove deep we dove pretty deep in that <laughs> so yeah i would i would honestly just say that like i think the way that this replicates sending you down this path of sort of like a tangential web of violence um and then circles its way back to sort of like your own complicity and responsibility in it um, is really, really effectively done. And the way that the information and details are doled out, um, very fascinating and often very grimly funny. Um, And yeah, a very, very brutal and like, I think really effective um, ending for the film as well, especially because I didn't actually have an argument going into this about the actual final scene, but as we talked about it, it actually made a lot yeah, more that sense made, to that me. That was awesome. It <laughs> kind of cleared up uh, something. I mean, who knows if that's his intention, but I think that... Well, I don't know why else you pretty... include that wide framing of yeah. the entire equation Equations that they are drawing in chalk, yeah. where she has also written her age, age eight, which, by the way, is the same age as his daughter when she was raped right. and killed, too. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, too many coincidences. Very, very <laughs> solid to high four for me on this one. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. I could easily see this thing becoming the five... Um, I just, I gotta say, after watching these two films, this guy, he's an, he's an absolute master at, at, you know, giving you enough answers and then peeling it back and showing you more to just continually question. You almost feel like one of the detectives yeah. as you're watching it. Well, just yeah, because both, like, oh, what's both Cure and Serpent's Path really do that with the style. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so yeah, I, I can't wait to dive into this guy some more. Definitely going to check out, uh, Pulse. Uh, and then uh, there were a couple others that you Bright guys Future, so. I think, is one that Sean said he really liked. Yeah. And I, I'm going to check out also uh, Retribution, and it sounds like also Charisma, because Sean has been saying sort Sweet. of, I think. Yeah, if, those will if all you, be added to my list for sure. So the, when you said peeling back, that just made me think, of course, of the, the guy's face being peeled off of his skull. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably where but I got it. <laughs> if, if, if you want a film that's like that, but you know, beneath every layer is another layer, and it just keeps getting more absurd, um, it. until it, it becomes outright comedy, then then charisma is, is really incredible. Cool. Um, as far as my own rating, I think that um, it doesn't have quite the high highs that Cure has, but I think it's, it's also sort of perfect in the narrow sense of not having any significant flaws that... Uh, really detract from the the impact as a whole so yeah i think four to five is maybe 4.5 if that's allowed that's allowed go for oh, it oh yeah absolutely another one i just wanted to mention that scene where they uh they kill the guy in the field and they have that big wide shot of just uh him running and then the father yep. just like emotionlessly shooting him even mm-hmm. walks up to him and like pops him another five times um, I just thought that that scene was incredibly effective. I just wanted to throw it on the. Oh record. yeah, well, and yeah, we 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 didn't talk about it a whole lot, but again, that that gunfight uh, in the abandoned warehouse <laughs> yeah. is also it's very pretty, awesome. pretty absurd and, and unhinged. Just like it's it's random, you know. It doesn't oh. seem like these guys are skillfully shooting at each other. Yeah, it's b- just by like, the way, just look this up now because I was curious who shot this. The guy who shot Lady Snowblood. Oh, cool. So there yeah. you go. Very cool. 
Interesting. Speaking of, because uh, we, we did talk about on the show with uh, yeah. Leslie Lee when we did Kill Bill and Lady Snowblood. Well, yeah, I think that that will wrap it up then. That was Cure 1997 as well as Serpent's Path 1998. Thanks so much, Sean, for joining us and bringing these films with you. This is the part of the show where if you've got anything to plug, you can do it right here. Uh, no, nothing to plug. Thank you, nothing? though. Come on. Oh, okay, no well, I, I will plug uh, Sean's Twitter because I have been following Sean for a very long time and it's been awesome seeing Sean kind of like, I remember back when your account had like 200 followers, maybe less. And, uh, well, that was, that was before follower inflation, um, set in because even, <laughs> exactly. even like drill had, you know, what, 2000 at that point or something. Yeah, baby, baby. <laughs> but either way, uh, Sean has good tweets. So if you like <laughs> tweets, uh, at Sean R. Moorhead is a, is a good place to find some of them. Um, Thank you. I'm flattered. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but for our listeners, I think in one week's time, we are going to be back with a bonus episode for you guys over on Patreon. And, uh, around this time, I think next week, by the time you guys are listening to this, it chapter two will be out in theaters. And I think we realized that we haven't done Stephen King on this show yet. Oh, so we decided we're going to do a, a Stephen King double feature. We're going to do the big one. We're going to do Carrie. Oh, didn't oh. we do Pet Cemetery? No, we didn't. We didn't do the class? Oh, no, no we were just we discussing. I'll cut this out. <laughs> <laughs> Either way, we're going to do Carrie, 1976, directed by Brian De Palma. Uh, obviously, probably like the third or fourth time we probably talked about Brian De Palma on the show, and not the last, because we've done what, Casualties of War, Body Double... Uh, Phantom of the Paradise. This will be the fourth time we talk about Brian De Palma. We love him. Um, And we're going to be pairing it with another Stephen King teen movie where the teachers get really physical with students sometimes. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) A lot of the time. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of the time. Uh, But this one by... Uh, John Carpenter. We are going to go yes. to 1983. We are going to do Christine. Yeah, baby. Actually, with all due respect to Kubrick and De Palma, Christine is is my favorite Stephen King film. I think. Nice, That's awesome. Well, we, uh, we just it watched it. Was the first it. time. For yeah, me. we just watched it. it for the first time, uh, and we're very excited to talk about it. So that will be again on Patreon.com/slash/Sleezoids/podcast in one week's time to celebrate a new Stephen King adaptation, which doesn't seem unique, actually, because I feel like we're getting a lot of them now ever since that movie was a success. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're we're going to see more and more. I'm yeah, sure. eventually, whenever uh, that Shining sequel comes out, we're going to have to eventually hit the Shining, I guess. Oh, yes. Because we haven't done yes, that. We, do. we, we We try to, I think, avoid a lot of the ones everyone's the talked big, to big death, ones, the little yeah. ones. So, but... Gotta hit him um, every once in a while, though. And in two weeks' time, I'm I'm scared to announce this one because this is the this is the <laughs> this, second this time for sure. This guys. time, I think for sure, this is the second week in a row I've <laughs> falsely announced what the next one is. But two weeks from now, I'm pretty sure we're having Will Meneker <laughs> the Chapo Draft House podcast. We're open to follow up our. Uh, he's he's a busy guy. He's a busy guy. Oh yeah, no, no. He no. was he was he was off in Iowa. He was doing some stuff. Big moves. Uh, either way. You know, he's got that big pod money. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but I'm pretty sure he's back and he's going to be ready to ready record for with action. us in two weeks time where we're going to be following up. Finally, our John Frankenheimer episode we did, uh, oh shit, like almost, almost a month ago now or two months yeah. ago. Yeah. Um, we did a Manchurian Candidate 1962 as well as Seconds 1966, which was one of probably Jamie and I's favorite oh, movies that we've- bangers. 
discovered uh, watching this show. And yeah, seconds uh, is like so, top five easily. Yeah, we're gonna do Ronin 1998 um, with Robert De Niro and Sean Bean and a bunch of others. And then John Frankenheimer's other sort of like car vaguely related, vaguely action movie, I guess, if you include the racing sequences, <laughs> uh, which which you should, because the way that they're filmed are actually incredibly action packed. Uh, Grand Prix 1966, the three hour Formula One film. Oh, um, yeah. Either way, both uh, John Frankenheimer doing a lot of car driving and car chases because uh, Ronan has uh, two car chases in it, I think, that rival uh, William Friedkin's um, very famous French connection and To Live and Die in L.A. one, which we had uh, amazing, glowing things to say about yes. the To Live and Die in L.A. one Incredible. when we did that film. So uh, in two weeks' time, that's what you guys can expect for your free episode. But that being said, I think that that will wrap it up for this week. Thanks, as always, for listening, and keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy.